have been documenting a remarkable phenomenon in indigenous families in Mexico and Guatemala. Young children in these homes are extremely helpful around the house. They help do the laundry, help cook meals, help wash dishes, and they often do chores without being told. No gold stars or tie-ins to allowances needed. For example, one mother said her eight-year-old daughter comes home from school and declares, Mom, I'm going to help you do everything. Then she picks up the entire house voluntarily, the study reported. Another time, the mom comes home from work and she's really tired. And the daughter says, Mom, you're really tired, but we need to clean up the house. How about I turn on the radio and I take care of the kitchen and you take care of the living room and we'll have it all cleaned up. Now, I hope the kids in here are listening. <laughs> the article continues, although there was a lot of variation within each culture, a clear pattern emerged. The Mexican-American kids aged six to seven were doing about twice as much around the house as the middle-class European-American kids on average, and they were doing so much more voluntarily. So what on earth is these parents' secret? At this stage, it's tempting to tell you, you're going to have to wait till the end of the sermon or maybe come back next week, but I will put you out of your misery right now, otherwise you're just going to Google it anyway. So <laughs> here's what the writer says next. This may come as a surprise, but over and over again, researchers said one thing is key, embracing the power of toddlers, embracing the power of toddlers. Yes, I'm talking about one to three year olds who in their own, in our culture, are more often associated with the term terrible than helpful. Toddlers are very eager to be helpful, says David Lancey, an anthropologist at Utah State University. Toddlers are born assistants. Need help sweeping up the kitchen, rinsing a dish, or cracking an egg? No worries. Toddlers, Inc. will be there on the double. In one study, 20-month-olds actually stopped playing with a new toy and walked across the room to help an adult pick up something from the floor. Lancey continues, I think we are doing a disservice to toddlers and older children when we deny them the opportunity to pitch in and be helpful. As soon as you can, number one, expose kids to chores as much as possible. Number two, think small tasks, big contributions. Number three, always aim to work together. Number four, don't force it. Number five, change your mindset about young children. Now, why do I share all this? Well, in today's gospel reading from John, we see Jesus doing many of these things. Now, you're probably wondering, what on earth are you talking about? Isn't it just a story about him feeding a bunch of people who've got no food? Well, yes, that's also happening, but there's something else going on here too. Jesus is training his disciples to do what he does. And while physically, yes, they are adults, spiritually, these are infants or children. They're new to following him and not sure what it all means. But he knows that if the work of the kingdom of God is going to continue after his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he needs to prepare them for that time, not by just throwing them in the deep end, but by gradually including them in his mission. And so in our story today, we see him expose them to his work. We see him giving them small tasks to begin with, not forcing them, but working together with them to help them see who he is 
and what his kingdom is about. And it's from these small beginnings that they grow into the people who will take the gospel to the world, joining in his work and changing our mindset about who can participate in the work of the kingdom. So let's turn to our gospel reading for today and see what God would say to each one of us. You can either pull out your phone and use the the app on your phone or follow it on the screen or use a Bible if you brought one. And the context for our gospel story is given to us in the first few verses. Look at verses 1 through 4. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, in the majority of the gospel accounts of this story, and each gospel has an account of this, it is, in in fact, the only story that is covered in all four gospels prior to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Well, in all of these gospels, it happens fairly early on in Jesus' ministry. It's the Passover, also the major Jewish feast, celebrating the exodus of the Jews from Egypt under the leadership of Moses about 1,600 years prior. And this is a nation-defining event. It's also the the location we see is the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias, which is a small town, a, a new town on the coast there of this sea. And Galilee is a sea or a lake that's about 13 miles long or six six miles wide. So a small sea, but a very large lake. And at that time, not surprisingly, it was surrounded by small fishing villages. You may know some of the names, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Magdala, and now, of course, Tiberias. And it's a relatively poor region where the farmers and the fishermen alike are taxed fairly heavily. And these are tough times for most people. And so along comes this man who is interested in them. He goes to them and who's doing seemingly miraculous things. And he's generated an enormous buzz among the indigenous people. And so it's not surprising when John tells us in verse 2 that a large crowd is following him. Later on, we'll discover that it's 5,000 men strong. And why men only? Well, in those days, they just happened to count just the men. So it's quite possible that once we include the women and the children who would have been there, it might be 20,000 people in all. And it must have been pretty exciting for Jesus' disciples to see all these people following him. But as we'll see at the end of this story in verse 15, much like a modern day politician, people are drawn to Jesus because of what they hope to get for themselves. They've seen or heard about some of his miracles and what he's been teaching, and they have misguided expectations that they hope that he can fulfill. RVG Tasker writes this, they were in consequence very ready to accept Jesus as a political Christ who would be a purveyor of cheap food and establish an economic utopia that would render the task of satisfying these physical needs less laborious. Well, it's within this context that Jesus now sits down to teach his disciples, many of whom are just like the crowd. And immediately he's presented with a teachable moment. In verse five, we read this, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? As I've said before, like all good teachers, Jesus asks good questions. 
He doesn't just want to give his students the answer. He, want to help, he wants to help them figure them out. He wants to involve them in the process of learning. He's exposing them to the family chores, if you like. And like all good teachers, he already knows where he's heading with this. He has a lesson plan, if you like. Verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Well, Philip has no idea what to say, and he fails the test, which is somewhat surprising given that fairly recently he likely saw Jesus turn water into wine at a wedding in Canaan. But in verse 7, we hear this. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, 200 denarii would be the equivalent of maybe six to eight months of wages for a day laborer in Israel. So think about maybe 15,000 or so dollars today, far more than they would have had with them. But even if they had this kind of money, think about it. How could they possibly find a place in one of the local villages that could provide food for 20,000 people? So he's way off base. And so Andrew chimes in, verses eight and nine, and maybe he's feeling pretty good about himself. He says this. There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Andrew's trying to help, but all he can find is some barley loaves, which is the cheapest of bread possible. Remember, these are poor people and some small pickled fish. And so it's almost a despairing answer he gives. As one commentator puts it, Philip has called attention to the enormity of the problem. Then Andrew points to the meagerness of the resources. And so again, the disciples fail the test. The solution is standing right in front of them. It's the Sunday school answer, right? What's the solution? Jesus, Jesus, right? And he's right there. But they're only still thinking in terms of what's humanly possible. Jesus, though, is God himself. And God loves to use what we see as meager, a child's lunch, perhaps, to display his power. As my former seminary professor, Rod Whitaker, puts it, He produces sons from barren women, Genesis 18, and even from a virgin, Matthew 1. He chooses what is foolish, weak, lowly, despised, and even non-existent, 1 Corinthians 1. He is the God of the impossible, as the salvation of each of us testifies. And so Jesus decides to show his disciples what God can do. He's going to give them a miraculous sign, and he uses them to do it. Think, small tasks, big contributions. And what's the first small task? Well, he gets them to help sit the people down. Not big, but he has to begin somewhere. It's a bit like, you know, when a child wants to help you cook breakfast, well, what do you do? You perhaps let them whisk the egg, right? You may not let them use the frying pan yet, but they can whisk the eggs. Well, then we read in verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. He takes this boy's meager lunch, and he does the heavy lifting this time. Giving thanks to the Father for what they have, he breaks the bread, and he begins to distribute the food out to everyone, turning a brown bag lunch into a picnic for thousands. And there's more than enough for everyone. Now remember, John's just told us that this is the time of the Passover, a feast where the Jews celebrate the exodus, Israel's escape from slavery in Egypt, but also they celebrate God's provision for them when they are hungry of food. Maybe you remember the story of God giving them manna in heaven in Exodus chapter 16. And so the more astute members in the crowd are probably starting to put two and two together, and they're thinking, ah, 
Something's going on here. Jesus is pointing to something. He's not just meeting their physical needs. He's revealing who he is. We'll come back to that. But Jesus has more small tasks for the disciples. We don't really see the full picture of this in John's account. But in the three synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark and Luke, it's quite clear that the disciples participate further in this miracle through the giving out of the food. Matthew writes, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave it to the disciples and the disciples, the disciples gave them to the crowds. They're working together with Jesus and each other to help feed the crowds. And there's yet more to be done after the meal. John tells us in verses 12 and 13, And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now Jesus tells the disciples to help collect up the leftovers. Nothing is to go to waste. And as an aside, I wonder if there's a lesson for us as Americans about stewardship of the resources that we're given. Did you know that as a nation, we waste a lot of food? It's estimated by the USDA that there is 31% of food, almost a third of our food, uh, that is lost at the retail and consumer levels corresponding to approximately 133 billion pounds or 161 billion dollars worth of food. Just think how many hungry people could be fed by that. Well, the 12 disciples representing the 12 tribes of Israel, collecting 12 baskets of leftovers, coincidence, probably not, surely a lesson that those who see it, that, for those who see it, that Jesus is going to provide for his people. And also note the abundance of God's provision. Just as Jesus provided more than enough wine at the wedding in Cana, a hundred gallons, in fact, which is more than enough for any good party, now he provides more than enough bread for everyone to eat their fill and to have 12 baskets left over. We do not serve a stingy God, friends. His grace is abundant and his resources are limitless. He will meet the needs of his people. Well, Jesus' miracle leads to a moment of right perception by the crowds, but then wrong application of what this means. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. The crowd, they rightly interpret Jesus' miracle as messianic. He's just recreated the miracle of Moses, after all, manna from heaven. And so they correctly perceive that Jesus is the prophet that they have been waiting for. Not just another prophet, but the prophet that Moses speaks of in Deuteronomy 18. The one like him that will someday come, but also much more than him. He's the ideal Messiah, unifying images of king and prophet. The problem is the crowds don't understand what kind of king and prophet he'll be. In verse 15, we read, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowds are misapplying what they've come to understand about Jesus. Yes, he is the Messiah they've been waiting for, but the crowd wants to force Jesus to define his mission and work politically, to become a king who will rival their Roman oppressors. 
And Jesus wants no part of such a kingship. As we've already seen in the temptation by Satan in the wilderness, he won't be tempted by all the kingdoms of the world. And so he withdraws quickly out of sight and up the mountainside, and this story comes to a close. What an incredible story, though. I mean, and renowned throughout the world, even non-believers often know this story, the feeding of the 5,000. It's almost become a part of our culture. And there's so much going on at different levels in this story. First of all, at one level, Jesus is physically feeding hungry people. You see, Jesus loves to meet the needs of his people, no matter how large or how small. I think someone has a need right now, right? Jesus, would you bless that person and would you protect them and bring healing if necessary, Lord Jesus? Amen. I wonder what needs you have today. What needs you think are seemingly insurmountable? A child perhaps who's not doing well, maybe a grandchild, a job that's a struggle, a teacher who you just don't see eye to eye with, a friend who's dying of cancer, a marriage that's seemingly over. Do you respond by saying, I quit, I give up? Or do you say, scripture teaches me that with God, all things are possible. Therefore, I am asking for help. I'm going to get down on my knees and pray. You come before him in prayer today. While at another level, Jesus is proclaiming who he is. He is the Messiah. He's the Savior who's come to set all people free from sin and death. And this is still the same today. No, he may not walk on this earth as he once did, but he's still very much alive. Now he's in heaven, though, with his Father, interceding for you and me. Jesus is praying for you right now as we speak. And for all those who repent and believe in him, life to the full is given, eternal life. And then finally, at another level, he's helping spiritual toddlers become spiritual children by giving the baby steps they need to become servants and ministers of the gospel. You know, man, where many would look at these, this bunch of disciples and say, what a ragtag group of people, they'll never amount to much. Jesus sees the potential in them to do greater things than he has done. He says those words before he ascends to his Father in heaven. You will do greater things than I have done. And it all begins with having them help some people sit down on the ground. Could Jesus have done this all by himself? Sure. But one day he's going to be gone. And if his kingdom is to keep on growing, then he'll need disciples who are able to go out and proclaim the gospel as he has. And this is still the case. Jesus is calling each one of us to participate in the work of the kingdom. The Christian faith is not a spectator sport where you guys just watch the pastor or the the worship team or maybe the staff members or the vestry of the church and you'll go, yeah, keep going, guys. Good job, good job, well done. No, no, no. It's a full immersion. We're all involved in this. It's not a spectator sport. No, we're all called to total radical obedience to God, following him wherever he would take us, serving within the church, serving within the community, and serving throughout the world. And if you've perhaps been following him for a while and you get that, 
Well, then I wonder, which less mature Christian do you need to change your mindset about, come alongside and give small tasks to so that they might grow up in their faith? Perhaps having coffee with them, maybe asking, can we read the Bible together? Perhaps um, helping them come alongside you in leading a life group, whatever it might be. Could it be a child, a grandchild, a fellow life group member? Friends, it's time to join in with the work of the kingdom. This is, after all, all that truly matters. And while you may not feel like much more than a spiritual toddler, God wants to use you today. He has rescued you by his grace for his purposes. As Paul wrote in our New Testament reading from Ephesians today, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them.